So today we continue in our uh, trek through some biblical counseling issues. And over the next couple weeks, I want to tackle an issue that is probably more practical and relevant than many. And that is counseling others to respond properly when God makes life hard. There is no one in this room, I'm sure, who would not agree that at times life is very hard. It is sometimes seeming unbearable and other times just extremely difficult. Um, And then just the general living day to day can be very hard. We face challenges every day, don't we? And we realize that those we counsel um, also face challenges And we have to understand that anyone we counsel or anyone that seeks our counsel is going through what would be considered somewhat of a difficult situation. And that's why they would come in for counseling. They're they're struggling with something or they're in need of knowledge or direction. And so we know that life is hard for everybody and we want to be able to help people most effectively when life is hard. And while much of our counseling in these times comes through way of encouragement and it comes through way of, of just sometimes putting an arm around somebody and crying with them or just, or just sitting with them, and that can be very effective, we want to know biblically how we can help them to overcome these challenges. And uh, on the front of your notes, notice I put three verses. First of all, James 1, 2, and 3, we're very familiar with. Consider it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I've taken great comfort in that verse over the years of you. Uh, Oftentimes I've referred to this verse because it's such an encouraging verse. Um, And again, this is where we walk by faith so often and not by sight. You know, we, we don't always see, we don't know what God has in mind or what he's doing. And we can encounter many trials and we just don't have a clue. It looks like a mountain in front of us. But we know that as we are faithful, we are able to endure. And Job 2.10, just another verse I refer to many times. You'll remember that after the amazing calamities struck Job, remember what his wife said to him in the midst of her grief and her despair? He, she looked at Job and said, why don't you just curse God and die? In other words, death would be better than this. And She was a faithless woman. She was a woman who basically said, just curse God, get it over with. And listen to what Job says. He says, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Isn't it amazing how readily we accept the good? We were, and and that's not a bad thing. We accept the good. We, We all love blessings, right? Amen, don't we? I do. I love blessings. And we love the good times and we love when we see God working mightily. And I think the Lord loves that we love that as well. But oftentimes when adversity comes, we don't have the same tenacity in, in assurance or faith or in resolve, do we? We tend to doubt. We tend to waver. We tend to be, life gets hard and we tend to kind of default back to our humanistic and fleshly responses, don't we? And yet Job says, shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? And then lastly, Timothy, at the end of his life, it's amazing what he went through. And he says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I mean, how direct can you get, right? Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
Well, let's look at this, and this is by way of introduction, and you can take notes. As I said, we're not going to have a PowerPoint for the next couple weeks, so you can take the notes that you want. Um, And if I didn't give you enough room, feel free to write on the back, or you can write anywhere you want. Hello, Salernos. Hola. 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 See, I know Spanish. (laughs) I forgot I'm taping this. This is, well, that's okay. Keep forgetting that I'm I'm wired for sound. You know. I would be a terrible CIA guy, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, that guy's a you know. Okay. <clears throat> so, how does the idea of God making life hard sit with you? Um, I don't think too many of us really ponder this question because it's kind of foreign to us. There's a certain uncomfortableness about thinking that God might make life hard for us. People shy away from talking about it. It goes against our sense of who God is. I mean, we are children of God. We're washed in the blood, right? So God loves us. God cares for us. He showers us with mercy and grace. And that's true. But the bad stuff comes from somewhere else, right? I mean, that's the attitude of most Christians in general. The bad stuff comes from outside. Um, In fact, we think of all of our trials and temptations in this life and And we're much more readily able to talk about how life is made difficult by the world, isn't it? Like when we have trouble and we have trials, we say, well, you know, look what these guys did. Or, you know, I'm dealing with unbelievers at work. And and look at the situation or what happened to my house or my car or my finances. And on and on it goes. And we have a tendency when bad things happen to us to kind of flush it off into worldly things. Um, And... We will say, well, it's because of the flesh or the devil or sinful choices, our parents, our kids, our enemies, you name it. Uh, That's how we justify things like that. But what about this? Does God make life hard for those who may be faithfully following him? Now, we don't think about that question much, do we? Could it be that God actually at times orchestrates pain and difficulty in our life? You know, the thought of this causes a lot of Christians to kind of recoil in anger, doesn't it? Like they, they, I mean, if I said this to a lot of professing believers, they would recoil at this. They would be offended. Well, God is a God of love. How can you talk that way? Um, and they would almost say that I'm preaching heresy by saying something like this. But does God, life make, does God make life hard for his people? And the answer is, of course, yeah, he does at times. Let's think back to the life of Abraham. Genesis 12, right? God promised Abraham a progeny, and I can just hear Abraham 20 years later after no kids. Well, God, you know, um, I know you promised me uh, children uh, 20 years ago, and Sarah and I waited patiently, and we slowly watched our childbearing potential dry up. My wife got so distracted and tired of waiting, she took matters into her own hands. And and I had a child with my handmade Hagar and created Ishmael, but who knew? I mean, let's get practical. Isn't that what we would say to God? Who knew? Uh, Who knew you would shock Sarah and me by miraculously giving us a son in our old age? Um, We're shocked, and, and who wouldn't be? If I had a child at 100, I can tell you I would be shocked. If I live to be 100, which is probably not going to happen. 
But don't you wonder why God didn't tell Abraham what was happening right away? I mean, think about this. Okay, I know how old you are, but look, here's the deal. I'm going to give you offspring. You're going to be waiting a couple of decades. Don't panic. I've got everything under control. Here's what's going to happen. So I just want you and Sarah to cruise a while and, and take, take good hope and cheer. Why didn't God just say that? I mean, don't, don't we ask that question of ourselves? God, why? Don't we, you know, what's going on? Can't you just tell me? What are you doing? And, and why didn't God just tell Abraham? I mean, why the uncertainty? Why the tension? Why the confusion? Why the anguish? Why did God decide not to do that? And then think of Joseph. How about him for another example? He had two dreams predicting supremacy over his family. And what happened? His brothers beat him up and sold him into slavery. Well, so much for that dream, right? I mean, and then he had kind of a recovery of sorts, didn't he? I mean, he becomes top dog in Potiphar's household in, in Egypt, but then he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and they throw him in the slammer. Like, you know, I, I get to the top, and then, man, what happens to me again? And then he's forgotten for two years, remember? Just totally forgotten. In fact, the psalmist would write about him in Psalm 105, he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. Listen, life was hard for Joseph. Very, very hard for Joseph. Uh, he would eventually, though, save Israel and Egypt from starvation. He would be the very catalyst that God used to save two nations from starvation. And then, of course, our classic example is Job, right? Who can forget about Job? In Job 1.1, what did God call Job? Blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. How would you like the Lord to say about that, that about you? Would that be a great compliment? God said of Job, he was the most righteous man who ever lived. Can you believe that? How would you like to have our God say that about you? I mean, you talk about an honor. Right? And yet in one day, God allowed Satan to take his health, his wealth, his family. I want to submit that no one's ever had a worse day than Job. As bad as you've had it, you've never had a Job day. Amen. Okay? Remember, in one day, he was stricken with boils from head to toe. And he was given one report after another. Here's the news that Job was given. The Sabaeans attacked and stole his livestock and slew his servants. Then he got a report that fire had burned up his sheep and servants. Then he got a report that the Chaldeans came and stole his camels and slew more servants. And then he got a report that a great wind blew down the four corners of his house and killed his sons and daughters. At what level do you think you and I would have passed out? Okay. Now, if we fast track to Job 42, Job 42, we see that God eventually brought renewed blessings and prosperity to Job, but not before life had gotten unbearably hard. And here again, don't you wonder sometimes, like, why couldn't God just tell Job, Job, I'm going to put you through the mother of all trials. But I want you to hang in there because when we get to chapter 42, things are going to get, right? Job never really knew what. Now we know why, because we have the Bible, but he didn't know that. Because he didn't have the complete revelation of Scripture. 
So we come back again. Does God make life hard? The scriptures make it clear. There are times when God intentionally by design makes life hard for his faithful followers. But why does God make life hard at times for those that he loves? Well, there are a lot of reasons for this, and we don't have time, obviously, to develop all the theology here, but let me give you the mother load of this, okay? God often makes life hard because there is no shortcut to the often painful process of sanctification that is necessary to make us fit as members of God's family. Let me say that again. God makes life hard because there is no shortcut to the often painful process of sanctification that is necessary to make us fit as members of God's family. Now here again, if we're in a counseling setting and somebody's coming with issues that are hard, this would be a good preamble, wouldn't it, to share with them? Because it starts to put their problems in perspective, doesn't it? Because here's the thing that Satan loves to do. When we have a problem, Satan has a way of trying to isolate us in our thinking as though we're the only ones that ever went through it. Right? How many times in counseling have I heard this? Pastor, life is unbearable and you couldn't possibly understand. I know we laugh here, you know, and, and sometimes I'm laughing on the inside, like, oh my gosh, I know, 27 years, I've never heard that, you know, I mean, it's, you know, and I don't mean to sound glib about it, because the problems are real, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to be, uh, you know, discourteous or disrespectful for the problem, but, but Satan does it, and, and one of the things we have to say is, look, there's nothing you're going through that's not common to me. You will never, nor have you ever suffered anything that others have not. Nor have you suffered anything that believers have not successfully navigated. So there's assurance there. So we can't say that we're unique that way. We can't say, oh, my problem is nobody else's problem. You know. So why does God do that? Because it is a process of sanctification. The most important thing that God wants for us is to be more and more conformed into the image of Christ. And there are many times when God does that through blessing. He does that through great um, prosperity. But there are other times when he does that through difficulties and trials. And let me say what I know for a fact, biblically, that you will always grow more in the crucible of suffering and trials than you will in times of plenty. And why do you think that is? Why is that? Trust God more. Okay, because you have to trust God more. I have two. Um, when we all want to live on the mountaintops, we want that mountaintop experience. Yes. But we get thrown down into the valleys, but in the valleys, that's where things grow. Absolutely. Boy, that's a good analogy. And the other one is, I love the verse that says, don't be surprised when troubles come. Yes, right, when, not if. Yeah, I love, yeah there's a when there. Yeah, you right. shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> right, yeah. Every it, day has an Right, yeah. It's exactly. Um, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, right? I mean, it's, it's not an if, it's, it's a when kind of thing. Josh? I don't remember who said this, but it might have been even in this class. But Is it good? Oh, yeah. Oh, then it's me. 
Awesome. Okay, go ahead. But, no. No, um, somebody mentioned like you know when you're on on that mountaintop yeah. and like everything just is like you know smooth, easy going. Yes. Like that's like the biggest point when we should be praying. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. There's gonna there's gonna potentially be something. That's yeah. Yeah, I often get most nervous in ministry when everything's going great, you know, because it's like, you know, okay, all right, you know, yeah, and that's right. We, we let our guards down, don't we? And we think, hey, this is great. And listen, we should enjoy those mountaintop experiences, but you know what? We can never afford not to put on the whole armor of God every day, every moment, because Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we're always at war. We may be in the rear for a while and getting some R&R, &R, but we're in the war, and the war doesn't go away. So that's, that's, we need to be always be filling ourselves up in the Word, always be in the Word. Amen. Be praying without ceasing because <clears throat> the, the Word calls for us to remember that in James 5.13 says, yeah. is anyone among you suffering, he, then, then he must pray. Amen. So we have to, we have to like be an automatic pilot in a spiritual sense that when those Amen. things come, yeah. we know to go to prayer. Amen, George. You're right. Quit being a counselor, will you? You get this all right. No, that's good. That's good. But that's true. That's and a great verse. Mm -hmm. A great verse. I think I get there eventually, but mm -hmm. you're thinking, my dear brother. Mm -hmm. That is exactly true. So let's talk about this. You know, from the moment of salvation, we're positionally justified. We start down this long road of progressive sanctification, the process to become more Christ-like, and it's hard at times, it's painful at times. And why is that? Because God will weave trials and difficulties and circumstances into our lives. Why? Because they're necessary for our spiritual growth, right? So, you know, um, when a young child goes to touch the stove, okay, you have young kids, okay, Lydia will get this, okay? So here's what little kids do, okay? Here's what little kids do. So you'll be sitting and you'll have a, a nice piece of uh, china on the coffee table. And you'll see your kid go like this. And you'll say, don't touch that. And they'll go like this. <laughs> Real slow. Don't touch that. Ah! You know, and you whack them, right? Because they touch it. You keep doing that. You keep doing that, right? They, they touch it. And eventually, through that owie, they learn. You know what? It's just not profitable for me to touch that because mom's going to slap my little hand every single time. Now, in adult world, God does the same thing, right? We can be spiritual children and God has to go and sometimes he tests us to strengthen us, right? When a child starts walking, you know, you hold them like this and they're real wobbly and then you let go and boom, you know. And then, but you keep trying, right? You, you just kind of keep trying and eventually they get it. And then you're wishing they never walked because now they're into everything, right? And you say, I was great when they were crawling and I didn't have to worry about this. See, Lydia, I know all this stuff, you know. <laughs> I'm seeing the mothers. <laughs> so we're being conformed into the image of Christ. The Lord burns away dross. He becomes a refiner's fire, a fuller's soap, as we're told in Malachi. And listen, this is the norm for every believer, okay? This is important for us to understand. This is the norm. This isn't, like when you fall into these things, don't think, well, this is odd. How come he's not suffering? I mean, he seems to be getting blessed, and look at me. No, no, this is the norm. Consider it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
Now, if God intentionally, by design, makes life hard for us, then we need to know how to counsel others, and perhaps ourselves, on how we're to respond to them during the times of difficulty. And for that, we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 5, because I think Exodus chapter 5 teaches us a lot about this. Let me give you a little background to Exodus chapter 5. We were in Exodus not too long ago. I think it was Christmas to be exact. But let me uh, share a little bit of background. And I have a great bluegrass song, too, that we're going to wind up playing one of these days. It's called Moses. It's a great great song. I'm probably going to do this as an instrumental because I don't want people to freak out, you know, when we actually do this in church. Bluegrass in church! Everybody will be praying for me that I've lost my marbles or something. I like it, though. Okay, Exodus 5 brings us to a pivotal point in Israel's history. It marks the end of the 400 years of oppression and suffering endured by the children of Abraham as they sojourned in Egypt. And you remember that during this time they had cried out to the Lord for deliverance from this oppressive bondage. In Exodus 2.24 we read, So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we know that God would fulfill his covenant promise to Abraham and his descendants that they would reside in the promised land, that they would become a great nation. We see that in Genesis 12. And I want you to notice God's instructions to Moses. Go to Exodus 3. Hold your place. Exodus 3, 16 through 18. Will someone read that, please? Exodus 3, 16 through 18. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of of Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised that I will bring you out out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Okay, now I want you to keep that in your mind. Okay, so God gives specific instructions here, doesn't he? And he says, you're going to go into the land of milk flowing with milk and honey, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, all the ites. We're going to knock out all the ites. Okay, that's what I just say, ites. Um, and, and he says, and then I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to say, please let my people go. Now, the thing I want you to notice about what is said in, in uh, Exodus 5 here is that there is an ambassadorship to the words that Moses was to use, right? There was, a, there was a kind plea, right? So God says that this is what's to happen. Moses then recounted all the words of the Lord to Aaron, and we see the outcome, and let's go to Exodus 4 and have someone read verses 29 through 31. Exodus 4, 29 through 31. Can someone read that, please? Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Okay, so we see, so, so far, so good, right? So far, so good. Always good when the Lord hears prayer. Always good when God says, I'm going to answer that prayer. And, and so this was good, so they worshipped. 
And, and so this kind of sets the stage now for chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we see Moses and Aaron, they're about to confront Pharaoh and demand that he let the children of Israel go. Life certainly had been hard for them, we know that. And it seemed now that their difficulties and struggles would be over. I mean, can you imagine God saying this? Look, I'm going to deliver you into the promised land, and you're going to, we're going to knock out all these people, and all these things are going to go well. It's like we would say today, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. We have been in bondage for 400 years, and now this is coming to an end. And God has promised that he's bringing us into the land. He's going to bring us into a better existence, a new existence, a blessed existence as his people. And so you can understand why they would bow down and worship, right? They would be encouraged by this. Who wouldn't be? Struggle's almost over. God had heard their prayers. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Certainly life for Israel would get a whole lot better, right? Wrong. Life was, in fact, about to get a lot harder than it was even right now. And God, in his sovereignty, would intentionally design it that way. So let's look at the events of of 5. And what I want to do here is begin today by asking a series of four questions that we need to ask when God makes life hard. And as we go through this narrative, the questions should define themselves But we're going to see as we study the events of five, how the Israelites responded when life got hard for them. And I will say that they responded improperly, but through their improper responses, God teaches us valuable lessons on how to respond properly when life gets hard. So we learn from the mistakes of the Israelites here. And what we want to do first is to ask the first question, and I want to give you a declarative statement here because again we're talking about this in the context of counseling others okay now let me tell you before I do this let me give you a little caveat here a little aside there is nothing wrong in fact there is great benefit when you're counseling in an issue like this to give some narrative and history of scripture why would that be important how might someone who comes to you with it let's say they're saying I just can't take life anymore here's the circumstances I'm in and I'm I'm at the end of my rope. Why would it be profitable for us in a counseling situation to back up and, and maybe give a narrative like this? Or to say that what we just said this morning? I think for two reasons. One, to let people, just another example that you're not alone. Okay, very good. That's absolutely one. And then two, being in scripture makes scripture relevant, I guess. Amen. Because you know, that's always one of those things where right. does this even apply? True. We need to always be thinking like God. We see it our way. Exactly. But we have to be asking ourselves always, how is God seeing this? Absolutely. Where is God in this? Yeah. And you know what? I think those two answers really combine the, the heart of this is that, you know, again, seeing it in the scriptures helps us, us to see it from God's perspective, doesn't it? Because we don't often look at life from God's perspective when we're in trouble. We do when we're being blessed. Oh, thank you, Lord. You've looked down upon me in mercy and grace. And I'm loving everything you're giving me. Thank you for the raise. Thank you for the car. But when things get tough, we tend to look at it from the this way. So, absolutely. Like Job didn't know that it was God who brought up his Right. Family. Exactly. And to show that God is faithful and that, like, even in the midst of this, okay, like you were saying, is that we can learn, okay, to, to see our trials from a completely different aspect. You know, for example, 
Um, when my granddaughter got cancer, and I keep going back to this example, I wasn't so much asking why God, why did this happen, but what do you want us to learn from this? How should I respond to this? If she doesn't make it another year, you're good all the time. And, and how can I learn from this? You know, that's hard to do that. You know, because your humanness wants to cry out, why? And this is wrong, and this shouldn't be this way, you know. But, but to see things from God's perspective, and realizing we see this far, but God sees everything. He sees everything in the perfect tense. And when God sees everything in the perfect tense, in the Greek, what I love about this is, the perfect tense is, is like you and I being up in a hot air balloon looking at a parade, okay? And if we see a parade from a hot air balloon, we see the beginning, the middle, and the end. We see the whole parade. But when we're standing on the street corner, what do we see? Just the band in front of us, right? We just see what's walking by. So in a perfect tense, what we have to understand is God is in, in control looking at everything. He sees it all. And he says, yeah, I know, this is a little hard here, but you're not here yet. And I see this, and you don't see this. So we trust God with that. But all your answers are spot on with that. So here's the first thing, and this should be in your outline, I hope. So, again, I'm giving you quite a lot of liberty with your notes. I'm trusting that you're going to be awesome in taking notes. Okay. Um, in verses 1 through 5, we see the first question that we should ask our counselee when God makes life hard. And here it is. Are you responding in obedience to God when things go unexpectedly wrong? Are you responding in obedience to God when things go unexpectedly wrong? Will someone read Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 5? Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold the beasts with me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to him, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you may, and you make them rest from their burdens. <laughs> Kaboom. Right? So here, Moses and Aaron are on a roll. God had assured the Israelites of deliverance from Egyptian bondage. He even told them, okay, now I want you to go and confront Pharaoh. And how would you feel if God said, I want you to go confront Pharaoh? Right? And so here they go to confront Pharaoh. And the people had renewed faith in the Lord, comforted that God was aware they were afflicted. They were bowing low. They were worshiping him. And I can imagine Moses and Aaron confronting Pharaoh with great confidence and boldness, can't you? I mean, I would think that they would have been very much energized. God was behind them, the people were behind them, so what could go wrong, right? Well, in their minds, nothing could go wrong, so they made this triumphalist presentation to Pharaoh, and notice what Moses said, he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast with me in the wilderness. Now, if you compare the response of Moses to the instructions that God gave, 
you're going to find that there are some very subtle nuances, differences rather, but very important ones. Um, they came very abruptly. They probably expected a very quick cataclysmic end to Pharaoh's oppressive grip on the people. But they got an answer that was completely unexpected. They got an answer that I think shocked and traumatized them, really. With defiant conviction, Pharaoh turned a deaf ear to God's command, severely rebuked Moses and Aaron for even thinking that he would let Israel go. Okay, and this wasn't what Moses and Aaron expected at all, was it? It's like, whoa. Not only that, not only did he not let the people go, he commanded them to get back to work. This was unexpected. It seemed that Moses and Aaron had failed. Instead of making life easier for the people, he incited the wrath of Pharaoh, who would now bring more difficulty on the people than they even had before. And if ever there was a man, I think, who crept off with his tail between his leg, it would have been Moses. Okay? And ultimately, Moses would blame God. Look at verses 22 and 23. Let's read that. Somebody? Chapter 5? Turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people. Listen, this hits our wheelhouse, doesn't it? Really? Mm -hmm. Why, why, God, it's your fault. I did everything you said. And I did it, and now look at what happened. And now it was worse than ever, wasn't it? I mean, this was not expected. This was not something that they counted on whatsoever. And I think we can relate to Moses and Aaron here. Isn't it amazing that oftentimes the more we try to live for Christ, the harder life gets? Have you ever noticed that? You know, I've said many times, I made a great pain. I was such a good pain. You know, I had no, no emotional struggles, no conscience issues. Paganism is simple. You know, you just kind of live for the moment. You live for the flesh. You live just, you know, right? But being a Christian, I think it's the hardest lifestyle in all the world. And the more you serve Christ, the more you desire to serve Christ, the more you desire to separate yourself from the world, sometimes the more trouble you bring on yourself. And we know, as I've been listening to reports on Fox News, little plug, um, there are more persecuted Christians than anyone else in the world. I mean, Christians are being slaughtered all over, the, all over the globe, and, you know, it should break our hearts that this is going on all over the place. Life doesn't get easier all the time, does it? We don't always get what we expect in life. Sometimes things go horribly awry. We're sure we're going to get that raise. And instead what happens, our salary is cut or we may even get laid off. Never thought that would happen. We're sure the last medical test will come back negative, but maybe it doesn't. And we're living for the Lord, but instead of things getting better, sometimes they get worse. And what are we to do? What are we to do when things go unexpectedly wrong? But we're to ask, am I responding in obedience to God and trusting in his sovereignty through the difficult time? The first thing is, where is my obedience level to Christ? 
Now, why do I say this? Because sometimes God makes life hard because of our disobedience. Amen? Sometimes. Not always. So the first thing we want to ask is, okay, what is my life looking like? Am I in sin that I'm digging my heels in? That I'm reluctant to give up? Is there a closet in my spiritual house that I'm not willing to open for God? Now, in Moses' case, he had failed to listen attentively to God. He didn't obey God precisely. And let me tell you what Moses did wrong. Moses was in disobedience to God when he went to Pharaoh. And that's one of the reasons he failed. And let me tell you where he was in disobedience, all right? First of all, he took the wrong delegation. He was commanded to take the elders, remember? But who did he take? His brother, right? Who? Who did he take? Aaron. God said, I want you to take the elders. Uh, that's all right, I'll just take Aaron. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but when God commands something, God commands, right? He took only Aaron. He was overconfident. Secondly, he disobeyed God because he adopted the wrong approach. He wasn't to be demanding like he was in Exodus 5.1 Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. He wasn't to be demanding. He was to say, the Lord God of the Hebrews met with us. Please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness. Do you see the difference there? That's rebellion. Remember when Moses was supposed to speak to the rock, but what did he do? He, he struck the rock, right? God takes that kind of stuff really, really seriously. And because of that one act of disobedience, what happened? He couldn't lead the children into the promised land, right? Joshua was the one who picked up the mantle and who led the children into Israel. Listen, God takes this stuff seriously. He came with defiance and with a demanding spirit, and God said, you're going to ask him, please, to let my people go. So he adopted the wrong approach, and lastly, he made the wrong request. He made the wrong request. Instead of the moderate request for three days leave of absence, remember God said ask for a three-day leave of absence, he demanded national emancipation. He didn't say, well, you know, we please like to have three days. That's what God said to do. And he said, no, let my people go. In other words, this is the end. So we see here, isn't it amazing, that a lot of the trouble that came on Moses was through disobedience. And you know, the trouble we have, and this is what we have to do when we're counseling, guys. We have to take off the layers of veneer, and we have to get inside a person's heart and see, okay, is there passive rebellion here? You know, we're very good at hiding passive rebellion, aren't we? I mean, we may not see something in a counseling session that's overt, but when we're looking to counsel somebody whose life is hard, and they're we're looking for disobedience, we have to look with a magnifying glass. Because there's many times that we can be subtly or passively disobedient, and that can cause big problems. On the outside, we may, they may look good, but on the inside, so we have to start asking questions. How did this circumstance occur? What did, how did you respond to it? What are you hoping to get out of this? Uh, what other people are involved, and what is your relationship with them? What does your track record look like? You know, we have to ask a lot of questions here. 
So there are times when people will encounter difficulty because they're in disobedience to God. Sometimes it can even be unknowingly. You know, a lot of times we may know it. Sometimes we may not even be aware of it. So when trouble comes, we have to first of all take time to examine either our lives or the lives of those we counsel. Am I obeying God to the best of my ability in every area of my life? Is difficulty coming because God is chastening me as a son or as a daughter? Okay? Now sometimes disobedience isn't the problem. Sometimes that's not always the problem. Sometimes things go wrong in our lives because our difficulty is part of God's larger plan. In other words, let me ask this question. Is it possible for God to put us through trial and difficulty for the sake of someone else? Yes or no? Yes. How many of you have children? God's putting you through difficulty for the sake of somebody else. Okay? 100% of the time. Right? That's just one example, though. Okay? I mean, look at Moses. Was he disobedient? Yes. Would it have mattered in this case if he had not said to Pharaoh exactly what God told him to say? It might not have mattered at all. And we know this because God had already told him about Pharaoh, that Pharaoh, he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart, that Pharaoh wouldn't let him go. Remember, I mean, he told him this already. So it might not have made a difference. So what did they think would happen when God said, I'm going to further harden Pharaoh's heart? I mean, okay. Um, God warned them that their faith would be tested, and that's a good lesson for this, for us, and that's this, that there is no such thing as untested faith. If you're a believer, your faith will be tested. There is no such thing as untested faith. If you're not being tested in the faith, then I really question if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a good thing. We will encounter various trials. God will make life hard at times so he can accomplish his purposes. Now, in Moses' case, God wasn't interested in bringing Egypt to repentance, was he? We know that. Now, Moses didn't know that at the time, did he? Moses thought, oh, Pharaoh's going to repent, and this is going to be great. And God wasn't interested in bringing Egypt to repentance. He said, I'm going to harden this guy further. And wait do you see what happens to these dudes at the Red Sea. He didn't tell them that, did he? See, Moses had it all wrong. It wasn't God's plan at all. He hardened them to bring the full force of his anger upon him. God would bring his wrath upon the Egyptians. And this meant in the interim, the Israelites would be more severely treated than ever. It was God's plan for this to happen because he intended all along to bring his wrath upon Egypt. And so things went wrong. And it's no different for us. Unexpected difficulties will confront us in life from time to time. And let's see if we have time to go through this. Uh, We do. Okay, what I want to do for counseling purposes, I want to give you four principles that will help those you counsel to trust and obey God, even when things are going unexpectedly wrong. All right? And, And again, we can counsel ourselves here too. You know, one thing I love about biblical counseling, I'm always counseling myself first. And that's a good way to look at it. So we can get it right in our own hearts and minds, and then as we convey this to others. So I want to give you four things, principles, to pursue when things go unexpectedly wrong. And we'll, wherever we get to it, can somebody tell me when it's like 10 after? 
or about maybe uh, 10, 11, 12, 13 minutes after. <laughs> I have how many? Eight. Eight minutes, all right. All right, number one, remember that obedience doesn't depend upon your circumstances, but upon your character. Remember that obedience does not depend upon your circumstances, but upon your character. Does anybody need me to repeat that? Yes? yes? Okay. Let me say it again, because I know I talk too fast. Remember, obedience does not depend upon your circumstances, but upon your character. Now, what does this mean? It means that the true measure of our faith is always seen in trials and in difficulties. That's why before I'd ever make someone an elder or a deacon, I want to see them at their worst. Does that sound weird? Because I want to see how they handle life when things aren't going right. Would you repeat that, the true measure of your faith? Yes. The true measure of our faith is always seen in trials and difficulties. You know, it's, it's easy to be stellar Christians when things are going well, isn't it? It's easy, Sunday morning we put on our, our happy faces, our Christian faces, and, and everybody thinks we're living the perfect lives, and, but we know better, don't we? But how do we respond when trials come? We want to be able to say like Paul did in Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. Philippians 4.11, right? Paul said, whether I abound or whether I'm abased, in this I've learned to be content. Why could Paul say that? Because his happiness, his joy, was not dependent on his circumstances, but upon his character. And when our desire is to live like Christ, then we rise above the circumstances. It doesn't mean we wish to lay down on the railroad tracks. It doesn't, I'm a bad martyr. I don't look for martyrdom, do you? I really don't go out every day and say, hey, I, you know, would somebody punch me in the nose so I can show I'm a Christian? But when it comes, it's character. Can we obey like Paul when he was under house arrest, when he says, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel? Here's Paul under house arrest, chained to the praetorian guard, and Paul didn't say, hey, get my one phone call. Right? He said, hey, these circumstances have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. God put me here. You know, and, and that's, that changes your life's perspective on things, doesn't it? So if we could see things from God's perspective, we wouldn't change a thing. Do you ever realize that? On your worst day, when you're saying, I can't believe this, how could this happen? How did I get in this situation? If we could be transported today to sit next to our Lord and to look down on our lives and God were to say to you, okay, what would you change? You know what we'd say? Nothing. It's true. Nothing. Eight minutes after. Okay. Because our circumstances are used of God, even the negative circumstances, for His glory, for our good. Remember that God sees things from the beginning. He sees the necessity of our hurts. 
the necessity of our disappointments, trials, and temptations, the necessity of tough times. And remember that your difficulties bring glory to God. Amen. So that's why we count them as a joy. Amen. Not, not because we love suffering or because we're sadistic, but because we know that we can count it all joy knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And that God is using our, our sufferings for the good. If we could see our lives from God's perspective, we wouldn't change a thing. Because God's going to get us where he wants us, right? If we belong to him, God's not going to make a mistake in our lives. I love Proverbs where it says that a man plans his ways, but the Lord, what? Directs his, his steps, right? God will override your plans when they interfere with his. <laughs> and I don't like that all the time, but that's how it is, right? God will definitely get you where he wants you to go. Okay, well, we better stop there. We have three more. We'll pick this up. Is this interesting or boring? I mean, is this like a good way to do it? You're okay with the notes like this? Good, right? We don't always have to have something up here, right? All right, good. All right, let me um, stop this thing here. I don't know who listens to this, but I, let's pray for them. Um, because